Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and I must say I am happy to be back in the host chair this week as we have just a terrific guest on the show today, Peter Atwater. That name may ring a bell for a number of reasons for you. If you didn't catch him in the New York Times and the Financial Times or Time Magazine, there seems to be a bit of a trend there. You likely know his work as the man who brought the term K-shaped recovery into common usage back in 2020. A quick reminder for you, the K-shaped recovery describes how different businesses and people would follow opposite economic paths out of the pandemic. A professor and consultant to institutional investors, companies, and policymakers, Peter is an expert on how social mood affects decision-making, the economy, and markets. And now he's written just a tremendous book about it, which was just released this month called The Confidence Map. We're going to ask him today about how we can apply his learnings about confidence to managing portfolios. But this episode will likely also resonate with folks from many different backgrounds and focuses. So welcome to the show, Peter. Thanks very much, Mike. Now, Peter, again, thank you. Thank you for this great book. I really enjoyed it. And I, f- I feel like it will become one of those reference books that live on the shelves of, well, well, lots of professionals, really, not just market makers. I actually wanted to ask you about that off the top, because the dust jacket on your book has lots of endorsements from various people, which you know you expect on any new book. But what struck me was the wild array of different people who weighed in. And forgive me here, I, I jotted down a few names of folks with quotes on paper here, one sec here. Got Morgan Housel, author of another great book, The Psychology of Money. Uh, General Stanley McChrystal, who of course at one time was the leader of all U.S. troops in Afghanistan. And then Rod Wood, President and CEO of the Detroit Lions. So as a way into learning about what the confidence map is about, my first question to you is, what do these people all have in common? What what did they get out of the confidence map? Um, I think that for all of them, the, the book identifies something that we think we know when we talk about confidence, but the way I've set it up, it is, to your point, as useful to people in money management, in marketing, in policymaking. Um, the principle applies. You know, at the core, we're, we're individuals who are all trying to navigate a world that at times seems uncertain. And what I've found is that the environments may change. I mean, the context in which people are using it. But what I've loved so much is how quickly folks are applying it in different parts of their lives. I talked to a business person recently, and we're talking about the applicability of the book to what he does for a living. And the next thing I knew, he was talking about major surgery that his wife was undergoing and you know how it tied to the anxiety that he and his spouse were experiencing. So it's something that I'm really just warms my heart to see people using it in all these different ways. It must be ex- yeah, exciting to to create something, put it out into the world, and then see the different ways that people really interpret it and extend the sort of the the scholarship that you put into it. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, the coaches, the nurses. I mean, it, it's just been really interesting. Okay, let's start with the basics, Peter. Let's let's get oriented. What is a confidence map? And and can you lay out for our listeners maybe the axes that the book is written on, and maybe as a way of illustrating it. Take us through that airplane turbulence example that you wrote into the book. Sure. So what I settled on in trying to come up with what confidence was all about were two elements, an element of predictability or certainty, as I use in the book, 
Um, and the other is sense of control. When we're confident, we think we know what's coming and we feel prepared for it. And so certainty and control became the variables that I track really closely. And I use control on the y-axis and certainty on the x-axis to come up with a very simple two-by-two box chart. And what that enables you to start to see is that different combinations of those two elements make us feel differently. When I have both certainty and control, when I'm in the upper right-hand corner of the quadrant, um, what I call the, com the comfort zone, we, we feel good. Life is easy. You know, it's, it's, we never want to leave. Uh, the opposite corner, the lower left-hand corner, is the stress center. And there we feel anxious and there's a sense of vulnerability, which is the opposite of confidence. The other two boxes are kind of unusual in that we have one element but not the other. Uh, the lower right-hand box is what I call the passenger seat. If you've been in the back of a cab or on an airplane, you have certainty, or at least you hope you do, but you have absolutely no control. It also defines a roller coaster or, in a negative sense, a prison. Um, the fourth box is what I call the launch pad, where we have control but no certainty. And the example I use often is being a rock climber, where you know what you're doing, but the outcome is still to be determined. And so I can begin to map different experiences, uh, different uh, moments in time to get a sense as to where a group of individuals are or where I may be in this process, because then I can start to ascribe stories and feelings and the way people are thinking. And in the book, I use an example of an airplane ride. You know, we're, we tend to be very relaxed as we're making our travel plans in the comfort zone. We walk down the jetway, the plane takes off, and now we're in the passenger seat. We have certainty, but we have no control. Add some turbulence, and we start to move into the stress center. That the absence of control becomes a very vivid feeling for us. We, we know suddenly we feel somewhat trapped on the plane. Uh, I talk about an aborted landing, which is an incredibly stressful experience for a passenger. And that puts us in the part of the stress center I call the trauma zone, those moments where we feel intensely powerless and uncertain. And so what you begin to get a sense of is that real life moves us around. You know, all those self-help folks that proclaim that, you know, have confidence and you'll have it forever, that's not so true. We, we, we are very dynamic and, and every day we're moving around as, as things happen to us and you know, it's a, it's a natural part of life. And what I found interesting about that example in the book was, was how different people can experience the same thing differently. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I, I compare the images that a confident traveler might have versus somebody who's scared of flying. Somebody who's scared of flying may never feel like they were in the comfort zone when they made their plans and were probably anxious from the moment they board it. On the other hand, somebody who's really confident never probably realized that during takeoff, they went from having control to having no control. The most interesting aspect was the, is the map that I included of a pilot. Because I, I was curious as I was 
working on this, you know, how would a pilot have handled that aborted landing? And the first thing that pilot said to me was, we don't call them aborted landings. He said, these are go arounds. And it's something we practice, we talk about, we prepare for. And he said, so chances are, while it was unusual, it was probably not very stressful in the cockpit, which I, I took as a very reassuring thing as a passenger, given how much I fly. Yeah. And that, that actually gives me a, a good segue for another question I had here for you, which is talking about the vulnerability first mindset. And in the book, you, you, you take through an example of how ER docs handle their day-to-day. And, and I imagine that it's a similar type of process that pilots are going through of how they create these processes. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the vulnerability first mindset and, and how it leads to, to better decisions. Yeah. For people whose day-to-day jobs involves being in the stress center and having to get out. So that would be emergency room doctors, firefighters, policemen, a lot of first responders. And so their focus is all about how do we regain certainty and control in this situation? And if you think about the emergency room, they don't care how you arrived there. They're not focused on what the cause of the problem was as much as the condition that exists now. And that's very different from the way many of us deal with crises in our lives. We get obsessed about why we got mugged or how we were in the car accident. Folks in the emergency room don't care about that. They just know they have a condition to address. And they talk openly about everything that's wrong. Again, something we tend not to do when we're in the stress center. Um, they share information openly. They're, they're very transparent about this is good, this is bad, and they constantly reassess. There is never a sense of status quo. It's always a sense of things are either getting better or they're getting worse. And so we have to continue to monitor until we're, we're certain that there is a, there's a recovery ahead. Yeah, I, I like that aspect of, and you wrote it, openness or outright eagerness to accept what is in front of them. So this idea of this sort of no magical thinking allowed, as well as that sort of this idea of not being afraid to change their course of action. I thought that was also quite valuable as a takeaway yeah, from that. Because those are both flaws that we as individuals, those are traps we tend to fall into. Yeah. And just picking up on that as well, there's something else that you mentioned there, this sort of idea of what we bring into situations. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the me here now tendency, which I'll, I'll let you explain, but it, it, for me, it sort of resonated as this idea that you kind of bring stress with you. And, and I'm curious if you can talk a bit about how, like, maybe talk a bit about what me here now thinking is and, and perhaps some, some good strategies for avoiding that and, and making better decisions in, in light of that. Sure. So when we feel anxious, our priorities change. And you can think about vulnerability as causing a reason to focus. There's a threat that we must address. And so what vulnerability causes is an intense shrinking of our priorities to the only things that are around us. So me versus you, right now versus tomorrow, right here versus where you are you know, in, in Vancouver. And that is very powerful in the moment when you're trying to address an immediate concern. But we fail to realize 
that the consequences are we're less cooperative, we tend to be more xenophobic, we're not capable of abstract thinking, so we tend to be very black or white in terms of what you know what's going to happen next. We we're catastrophizing. Um, we also tend to think that others may have gained at our expense. So if I'm feeling vulnerable, something must have caused it. And so that won and I lost. And you, we see this dynamic a lot, it, you know, in, in politics and in sports. That, and so it, we need to be careful not to fall victim to that mindset because it can be very negatively reinforcing. They're bad. We will we will make bad out to be worse. Yeah, and 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 that it, you, it can continue on with you beyond the incident itself, and and that sort of negative reinforcement in your mind of sort of cycling over it um, can waste days and weeks afterwards after a single type of a of an encounter. And we'll take it to work with us. I mean, we'll take it wherever we go. So that so that vulnerability changes who we are it, with the external world. You know, if, if my car battery doesn't work, I'm not going to be thinking strategically in the workplace. I'm not going to be thinking abstractly, trying to deal with complex situations. My mind is still focused on the problem at hand. So is, is, the, is the solution to that then to be mindful of the fact that your mind is doing that to you? And to like, how would, how would you deal with that if you felt like you were bringing that, that dead battery into work with you? Yeah, so I... I frequently reflect on where am I and to remind myself that I will move around. The stress center is never forever. And so to the extent that I can be graceful there and feel resilient, knowing that it may not be right now, it may be an hour or three hours from now or tomorrow, I, I will get through this. And so to to avoid getting preoccupied to fall into that scarcity trap of, of vulnerability and to, to realize that it's for now and, and don't live in the past and don't project the present into the future. One of the things, and this is just a quick aside, because an example of what made the book so enjoyable for me is just the, the, the research that you did into sort of side, side pieces or facts about these things. And the one that I'm thinking of is, is how we eat when we're depressed. Can you just Tell us a bit about that, just just to get that one out there for the for our listeners, because I found it quite interesting that the correlation that you that you identified between depression and uh, certain takeout. Yeah, so our diet when we are depressed, and I I use the example in my class of uh, of breakup. You know, you you've broken up, and so what do you reach for? And invariably, the discussion turns to pizza and Chinese food and. Ben and pints of Ben and Jerry. I mean, that that is the serving size. You know, all the chips and dips and wine, you know, lots of, you know, we, we're terrible as eaters when our confidence is low because we're not thinking about tomorrow. In fact, we don't think there's tomorrow. And so that just, again, creates this vicious spiral where we're not being our best person in multiple dimensions. We'll do the same thing with relationships. So one of the other concepts that you you get into, Peter, is is this concept of, of the five Fs. And uh, it's a family show. So I wonder if you could... <laughs> take, 
talk a little bit about that. What what is the you know we to give context here? We've got this idea of fight or flight, which is a sort of the most well known responses that folks have to stress. Uh, but you you expand that dialogue a little bit. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, fight and flight get all the attention. There's freeze when we get stuck and are incapable of moving forward. One that's really powerful and and I think woefully underappreciated is follow. Our easiest response to intense vulnerability is to follow somebody else. And I'll, I can talk about the good and the bad with that. The, the last one is a very familiar F word. And that deals with the nihilism that naturally comes along with um, with very low confidence. We, we basically say, forget it. I'm, I'm out. Um, and, and that can be somewhat self-destructive. It can also be destructive of the organization we're working in. You'll see that in mergers where employees say, you know, I, you know, I know I'm going to be a victim of this in a layoff. So between now and then, I'm just going to create this, um, this endless sea of, of turmoil. And what we forget is that all five of those are available. There's no single response to extreme vulnerability. And so leaders particularly need to recognize that people will select the one or combination of the two that that matters the most to them. And so they need to be prepared not only for fight and flight, but for freeze, follow, and you know, the other one. <laughs> well, that, that leads me to a great uh, sort of another question that I actually had here, Peter, which is sort of applying these in I guess, a leadership perspective, but I mean, I'm thinking about it from a CFA charter holders that are out there listening. So we've got investment bankers out there who are putting together M&A deals. You've got equity analysts who are assessing the quality of those deals or even just assessing the day-to-day management of the businesses that they're that they're holding. And so, I mean, eff- effectively, these are, if they're not, if, if leadership is not acknowledging the potential for adverse reactions to say an M&A deal, they're not managing risks. So wondering how, how, how could folks in our industry use an understanding of this to, to assess a company or a company's ability at managing those risks? So I don't think any of these boxes are inherently good or bad. So we, we make a combination of very good decisions and very bad decisions based on where we are. We need to be particularly careful in the decisions we make at extremes in confidence because we are as likely to be overconfident as we are to be underconfident and i don't think underconfidence gets enough attention but you know particularly in market turmoil and panic we tend to catastrophize and we we overemphasize what could go wrong in the same way when we're overconfident we overemphasize what could be what could go right the challenge is that we then scale those decisions in an enormous size. So I will overbuy at the top and I will oversell at the bottom. The classic, you know, put it all to cash at the very lows. And if we can look at manias and panics, not as emotional phenomenon, but as objective conditions, then you can start to look around and say, oh, that crowd is panicking. People only panic as they're approaching the bottom in confidence. And so rather than becoming fearful about that, we should start to get excited. 
we should realize that with that will come opportunity if we can look at it in an unemotional, objective way. It's telling us where the crowd is headed. In the same way at the top, the, the mania and that, that intense need to buy and, and the things we buy, you know, the, the out-of-the-money call options in, in whatever size we can, we can possibly scale, those are telling us that the crowd is at the other extreme. And so I think it's really useful, and I, and I do this every day, you know, where's the crowd today? What is their behavior? What are their stories telling us about their position? Because ultimately, confidence is a trolley track. You know, it only goes so far in both directions. And when it reaches the end, it's going to immediately turn and you have to be prepared for that, particularly in the investment world. Yeah, because I mean, that's the only way you make money in the markets, right? Just to have a contrary view that's, well, that's correct. But sensing those extremes in, in sentiment can often offer the, the greatest entry points, really, or exit points. <laughs> yeah, and, they, and they're the ones that go contrary to what your gut is telling you. And that that's where being able to look at these very emotional, very impulsive behaviors objectively allows you to decouple from your gut. Yeah, you can sort of visualize where the market is on the confidence map and say, okay, everyone's feeling like they're way deep in the bottom left, they're stress-centering. They're acting irrationally. They're me here nowing. They're <laughs> yeah. They're selling hey. the cash, and I'll be on the other side of that trade because it's going to revert back up to the top right. Yeah, remember at the very lows, we crave things that are incredibly tangible. You know, it's it's why in the early days of the pandemic, we went and got toilet paper and water and all of this stuff that we had to have on hand that we could touch. You know, we put cash in the mattress at lows and confidence because it's so me here now focused. It just brings to mind that other example you gave, which is that the, the rise of craft brewing, which I love craft brewing. There's there's lots of uh, lots of them in my neighborhood, which is fantastic. But the, you you linked that to the to the great financial crisis, which is folks wanted to be they wanted things that were more tangible, things that were closer to home, things that they understood, and that and specifically in that context that were not sort of big business and and further away and and uh, and uh, faceless, I guess. Yeah, the, the abstract. We abhor abstraction when we're in a in a low confidence environment. We don't understand it. It seems useless. It seems far away. I mean, you could see that with the pandemic in terms of our feelings about the World Health Organization. You know, that this behemoth. You know, you you just couldn't put your hands around. Well, what is it that they really do? That's the nature of our thinking when we lack confidence. And in that context as well, you, you talk about talked about the, that follow instinct is that it, was, it it gave rise when you have it, when you have a high level of stress like that in the stress center is that there is a lot more opportunity for, you know, alternative sources of information or leadership to emerge. Uh, and people will follow other people that, that tell them things that are familiar to them and are not as abstract. If I, if I read it correctly. Yeah. we we, we will take somebody that we trust over an expert at all times in lows of confidence, you know, and, and we, we need to be careful, you know, predators, cult leaders, authoritarian figures, they love us when we're in the stress center because we're easy targets. And so we need to remember that ultimately none of them want us to regain control in our lives. They're 
their goal is to is to maintain control throughout. So they'll make they'll they may make it things better, but they will not return us to the comfort zone. Aside from what we've covered, it was a short conversation today, Peter. But is there anything else you hope readers might take away from the book that we haven't covered in our in our chat today? No, I think for investors, you know, one of the things they should be thinking about is, you know, how does sentiment play into their portfolios? You know, if I think back to last year, we went into the year with sentiment in both stocks and bonds at an extremely high level. And so we saw this this consistent synchronous sell-off that many balanced investors were unprepared for. They thought their portfolios were diversified, but when it came to sentiment, they owned one thing. It, the, the whole pie was piping hot. And so investors need to be more open, I think, to owning things where sentiment is terrible, just to realize that is ideally what creates yeah. covariance is isn't historical correlations it's current sentiment that's uncorrelated you want to buy things where sentiment is rising and falling is high and low because it's that mix that over time should generate greater returns with lower risk for for your portfolio now i know you you spe- you've spent time working in in financial services in addition to being an author and a professor so I wonder if you could cast your mind back uh, and think about what your first job in the industry was. And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? What you think as an investor doesn't matter. That ultimately price is determined by the crowd and how the crowd feels. And I wish that I had had that rolling in the back of my head throughout my career. I'd have paid a lot more attention to the broader world of investor sentiment than I than I certainly did. I've been speaking today with Peter Atwater, author of the newly released book, The Confidence Map. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Peter. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much, Mike. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this is me, Guiding Assets. Mm-hmm.